Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Dr. Terry Root is an active conservator of the earth and all its species. She was the lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which led to her being awarded the Nobel Prize. She received this in conjunction with then Vice President Al Gore. In addition to this honor, she's been awarded the Spirit of Defenders Awards for Science by Defenders of Wildlife and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the conservation group Point Blue. She has served on multiple boards, including the National Audubon Society and the Wildlife Birds of the Caribbean, and the American Wind and Wildlife Institute. She joins us today from the microphone in Florida, and I could not be more honored to have you, Dr. Terry Ruth. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Terry, you're a different type of storyteller than that which I usually host on this show. I usually have a novelist who has a great story to tell, or I have a reporter who is used to telling America's story. But the reason I invited you here to the storytellers is I think the story you tell and the outcome of your story is important for all of us, our world, our species. How did it get to be your story? Oh my gosh. Well, it started probably when I was about 14 and I went out and tried to identify birds by myself. I decided on Thanksgiving Day when I was 14, I was going to identify birds by myself. I don't know why I did, but anyway, I did. And I came back in. My mother was a bird watcher. I came back in and I had identified two species of birds all by myself. And that got me really excited about birds. And so then I started. Um, doing a lot of computer work and I had bird data on the computer and I could play with those and I really enjoyed playing and seeing what those data told me about where the birds occurred and where they didn't occur and I decided that that was what I wanted to do and I realized I realized how important climate was to birds and this was, I know it sounds funny now because it's such an obvious thing. This was back in 1982 and people didn't realize how important climate was to where birds occurred. And so I, I started playing with this and found out how important it was. And I just decided that that was what I wanted to do with my world because I really, really thought that we had to do something about climate change. And this was back in 1987. So, so, I've been so you, were the, you were the Greta of your day, if you will. <laughs> and I hadn't, I, I hadn't made that comparison until just this moment, but you were. <laughs> well, people thought I was absolutely crazy. Actually, when I did my PhD, there was a man on my committee that refused to sign my dissertation because he didn't believe that climate was important to birds. He thought it was all competition. So I really was, a, 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 I shook the ground and told people that things needed to be done differently. And that got everything into looking at how climate change is going to be affecting plants and animals. And that's what I've done all my life. And when I first heard you speak here in Florida, 
what I was very impressed with was, and we will get into some of the dire statistics, but you took it from this great big macro level to this little teeny micro level. And you actually, I'm a big birder, I love birds. And you talked about this bird that had to move just up a few feet every year to find better nesting because of the minuscule change in temperature. And so you had me hooked at that. Can you tell that story? Sure. There was a, a colleague of mine that did some work in Peru. And he did this back in, oh my heavens, um, I'm not going to remember what the year was, but it was 19 something, 19, I don't know what it was, 19, let's say it was 1980. And he looked to see where the birds were on this mountain in Peru. And he had one bird down low, one bird in the middle and one bird at the top. And then in 2007, some people went and redid that exact same study on the exact same transect and found that the bird on the bottom had shifted up, indeed it had, and the bird in the middle had shifted up because it was getting warmer, they had to get to the cooler areas, and the bird on the top popped off the top of the mountain because there wasn't any more mountain to move up. So that's what's happening already. That has, this was in 2007, things were already shifting. The same thing went on in California, there was a, a man who, uh, Joseph Grinnell, who did studies, oh, a long, long time ago in the 60s or so. And people then went back and looked at his studies and found, too, that mammals, not just birds, but mammals, had actually also moved up this transect. And the thing we have to worry about are the, the species that are up at the top of the mountains. They don't have any place to go except extinct. And that's, that's a very real phenomenon. And to communicate that, I've also heard you speak about the sociology of climate change. That yes, there's the science, but for some of us, we have to feel it differently. Can you talk about that, the sociology of climate change? Well, the sociology of climate change, we have to realize that we have, we have, we, we are important in what, what is going on. So we have to ha have to realize that what we are doing is making a difference. And people will say to me, Terry, I can't make a difference. I'm just one person. And that is so, so, so wrong. It's just so wrong. You can do a lot and we need to get involved. Each of us needs to do our own thing. Um, if it's as trivial as making um, all of our errands go in at one time, instead of doing seven errands and wasting the gas to do that, put them all together and do them all at one time. Does it sound trivial? Yeah, it does. Does it make a difference? Yeah, it really, really does. So it's things like this that we can really make a difference. We can make a difference in what we eat. We can make a difference in how we, how we take care of our house. If you have a crack in your window, Fix the crack in your window. Change the, how cold you keep the house, how warm you keep the house. There's a lot you can do. You can put insulation in. There's a lot of things we can do, but we all have to realize that we all have to be involved and we all can be involved. Because I've also heard, you know, as I do research for these things, I love to dive deep into my guests. And I've heard you speak uh, in other interviews that it's really very dire. We are talking about mass extinctions of species. 
Yes. How do you yes. bridge that gap then between what is a reality, right? It is a reality. Okay. What what we absolutely, we as a human population absolutely has to do is we have to make sure that we don't go over two degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit over natural. And when I say over natural, it would be what the temperature would be if humans hadn't affected it. So over natural is what the temperature would be, say back in 1880, for instance. Um, so we don't wanna go over that because we know, the scientists know that if we warm the planet by two degrees, then the methane that is frozen in the oceans is gonna start melting and it's gonna go right up into the atmosphere. And when it goes right up into the atmosphere, then methane is a stronger greenhouse gas than CO2 is and carbon dioxide is. And it will really, really warm the planet. Probably in about 20 years, we would get about two to four degrees warming, just like that. And that would be causing a lot of a lot of suffering. The IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, in 2007 came out and said that if we go up by two degrees C above natural, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above natural, we could lose a quarter of the species on the planet. And if we go up four degrees above natural, we could lose half the species on the planet. Now, I used to, when I started giving talks about this, um, I used to say we're right on the edge of a mass extinction. But Grace, we're not on the edge of the mass extinction at, at, at all. We're already in the mass extinction. The, the rate that we are losing species now is very, very, very fast. And it is tracking exactly what we would expect with a mass extinction. This is happening on our watch. This is what's happening on our watch and we need to do something about it and there's lots we can do about it but and that's i, I think the that's the important message because um yes. i i i feel paralyzed sometime okay you know i do run all my errands together but i don't have solar panels on my roof so are we doomed but i love your message and it's a courageous leadership message because i want to get into in a little bit about how courageous you have had to been but you believe that there are many things we can do Oh, there's there's lots and lots and lots we can do. Um, everybody who is is listening to this, make a pact with me. Don't ever say again that you believe in global warming or that you believe in climate change. It's not a belief; it's a fact. So just say yes. The, the globe is warming. I know it sounds small, but it makes a big difference. The other thing is is make a pact with me. And the next car you buy, whenever you buy your next car, you know, it can be three years from now, it can be five years from now, buy a car that you actually plug in. Now, does it have to be all electric? No, you can have gas and electric, but on the electric, you should get about 40 miles because that's what errands usually take is about 40 miles. That will mean that you're gonna be using very little fossil fuels if you have a plug-in car. Um, the other thing you can do is pick a day a week. Actually, I'd like you to pick three days a week, but let's pick a day to begin with and have no beef and no dairy because 
our 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 diet is is not good for the planet. Let's just put it that way. Um, and if we can do away with beef and with dairy for one day, all of us, it'll make a big difference. My grandmother was a Roman Catholic and she used to always eat fish on Fridays. Now, if she can do that, I can stop and not have beef on Fridays. I can do that. We all can do that. So that's that's the other thing we can do. Um, well, that's, imp that's empowering because one of the things that really struck me in my research for today was my ignorance about how courageous individuals have to be, whether it's saying, yes, climate change is real, or I'm going to buy an electric car, or I'm not going to eat meat on Friday because of the planet. But you and your first husband had numerous death threats against you. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were horrible. They, they were horrible. My late husband had, had a bunch. And then I, I actually, in 2003, I published a paper. And it was all about how plants and animals are being affected by climate change. It was the first time that this had been said. And I actually got the front page article on the New York Times. Hey. And what I was, I was really pleased. But what happened was Rush Limbaugh saw it and he picked it up and put it on his radio show. And he told the people on the radio show that I was a very dangerous person and I needed to be put in my place. And all of a sudden, I, my, my assistant came into me and said, Terry, what in heaven's name has happened? Why are you getting death threats? And we, we turned it over to the police and the police were fabulous. And it all went back to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> so it was, it was horrible. It's frightening to me that you and your late husband would have been so inundated by death threats and uh, living your life, I, I've heard how you've had to kind of clean out how people can find you. And I love that you're going to share at the end of the show how people can still communicate with you. But can science and politics find a happy home? Um, oh, that's I a have, hard question. That's a, that's a real hard question. I have hope all the time. But right now, Life is really tough, um, given the divisiveness that we have in politics. And George W. Bush made climate change a political football. It was his doing that did that. And now it has just continued. And now we have this horrible division between Republicans and Democrats that is very unhelpful for our democracy and stuck in that division is climate change. And I think people are finally realizing as so much is going on, like the tornadoes just just, yes. just the other day, um, people are realizing we're having extreme events and those extreme events are linking back to climate change and people are realizing that climate change isn't a political issue. My late husband, Steve, used to say he'd never seen a, a Republican flood or a democratic fire. It just is a flood and a fire. Forget the politics of it. 
And I would hope that science and politics could become better friends, because as I said at the start of our interview, how this story ends is going to be important for each of us. Talk a little bit about women in science, if you will, because you really were a forerunner in that area, I think. It, it has been a hard, hard battle to fight. Um, women are not seen as being capable of thinking and being and doing and working in science. Um, and it has been a battle. It, I, I have to say, I've I've had lots of battles. I've had people. I've had professors come up to me and waggle their finger at me and tell me that I didn't know what I was talking about when I I knew better than they did. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of things have gone on. Um, it just is a. It's it's one of these things that you just have to fight. No, let's not put it that way. You don't fight. What you do is you pick your battles. Some battles I would fight. Some battles I would just leave go. Um, but when it was a student, I, I had a student that was being sexually harassed by a colleague of mine. And when I found that out, when I was sexually harassed by colleagues, it depended on how strongly it, I was harassed. But as soon as I found out a student was being harassed, I was a, I was a bear. <laughs> I was a bear. And I went in and I protected that student. And, um, but it's, it's, it's a hard, it's been a hard thing, a hard battle to fight. And I think in a, in very strange ways, losing, um, abortion rights is actually going to harm how women are seen in our culture because we're no longer going to be seen as though we can make the right decisions. Somebody else has to make the right decision for us. And having 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 the right to to pro-choice means that people respect you and you can make that choice. And I'm really concerned that we're going to be losing more than just abortion. We're going to be losing respect. And that that concerns me. And regardless of where people who are listening fall on this issue, I had not thought about it that way. And that's one of the things in each of the times I've heard you speak or listened to an interview you've given, you always give me another way to think <laughs> about it. And for me, the takeaway there is, again, regardless of where you may be religiously or politically, we are more connected in almost any issue than at least I sometimes give us credit to be. I would not have connected those two issues, women in science and um, reproductive rights. So you always make me think, which is, I, I love that. Um, and, and, you know, there's a woman named, uh, I think it's Margaret Wheatley, who wrote this amazing article called Willing to be Disturbed. And her focus of the, it's a very short article, but her focus on that is, are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are we willing to say, mm, I'm not sure about climate change, but then there's that. And I would hope that minimally our listeners would be willing to be disturbed and wrestle out those issues for themselves with politics and science as well, because I think we're all better served as part of that. Um, talk about the Nobel Prize. 
I've never met a Nobel Prize winner before. <laughs> Talk about that. Yeah, it's actually the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay. And, and what was what was absolutely wonderful about it was is that we won it with Al Gore. Um, there were there's about on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, there's about two thousand scientists around the globe that work on this. And um, what happened is is that the that the IPCC won the award with Al Gore. Well, when when it was when Al Gore made the accept not accepted, but anyway, when it was when it was publicly known that that Gore was going to do that, he happened to be in Palo Alto, and he and my late husband were very good friends because back in the late seventies, Al Gore wanted to know about climate change because he thought climate change was going to be a real issue. So he called my late husband and said, would you give me a two week tutorial on climate change? So anyway, Al Gore calls up Steve and says, Steve, I know that you're on the IPCC. Will you and Terry, and, and he knew Terry, I was too. So will you and Terry come and be on the stage with me in, in Palo Alto when we're talking about all of this? And it was just, it was just so wonderful, but Gore, everybody was trying to figure out if he was going to run for president and Gore always would answer questions, but this time he decided not to because he knew the questions were going to be about the presidency, not about climate change. And so he said to Steve, he said, as soon as I say, and thank you so much for this, he says, I want you to jump up and come over to the microphone and take the microphone and and allow him to get out while the the reporters didn't know what was going on so it, it was it was very it was fun to be part of that that orchestration of all of this going on it was it was it was wonderful and we we all got plaques and it's it i i only have this much of a nobel peace prize but i just I, I'm thrilled to have it. It really well, is wonderful. And, I, and I'm thrilled that you would grace our microphone today with all that you shared and the fact that we have hope in all of this, even though yes. we're at the brink of an unprecedented point in history on so many levels. I always like to ask as I begin to wrap up, what's something different that people might not find out about you? That might not find out about me. Oh my gosh. Um, I think the main thing is about me is that I always have hope. When I started this in 1987, I had a friend who said, we only have 10 years. I said, no, that's not true. If we start in 10 years, we'll do, save more than if we start in 20 years. And people will say, Terry, how can you keep working when it's so dire? If I can start and change anything right now, that's gonna be something that, that is, is important to change. So there's always hope. You just have to keep working. Terry, thank you for telling the Earth's story and for being a storyteller today. This has been a copyrighted episode of The Storytellers by Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network, and Grace Salmon. Thank you. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode, because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.